The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Namaste to all of you and good evening. Tonight's uh, satsang is having a few peculiar characteristics. First of all, because it's a satsang where the theme had not been announced in advance. It's also due to the fact that it is a satsang which comes before a period of four weeks where the satsangs will be, most of them, recorded lectures from the previous years due to my not being present here. So I didn't want to start a whole new cycle, a whole new subject, just in one lecture before I'm going and then postpone it for another four weeks. That's why I wanted to do a presentation to, to discuss about one subject which will come as a single lecture, uh, a single subject um, which can be contained in uh, this satsang of tonight. Also, it is peculiar because, as you can see, usually the satsangs are much more attended, but we are in a very, very agglomerated, a very crowded period of the school, some people going to the rites of passage, some, being, some people being involved in workshops. So because of this, uh, this uh, satsang uh, is recorded for the benefit of others who will want to uh, enjoy it at some later time. I wanted to speak, uh, first of all, I, there are, the, the theme is one, but it reflects especially in two uh, applications to it. I wanted in general to speak about the spiritual practice in the Tantric tradition because sometimes the spiritual practice in the Tantric tradition, and when I say Tantric tradition it means Tantric in the large meaning of the word, it doesn't refer only to the Tantric sexuality. The Tantric tradition at large has practices which are very, very unusual because of its philosophy Remember that my personal evaluation is that about 90% of what's happening or 95% of what's happening in the world today is a non-tantric type of spirituality. And that's why whenever people try to evaluate spirituality or spiritual practice, they use very wrong measures. They use very wrong norms because they all the time try to compare things which are tantric with things which are not tantric and instead of comparing the results, the tree is known by its fruits, they are actually comparing they are actually comparing some of the practices themselves. Sometimes the tantric tradition advocates the same practices as other systems of spirituality. For example, Tantra does not deny the fact that a person who is weak needs some discipline, that the person needs to perform tapas, tapasya. For example, if you feel that you are not enough yang, or if you feel that you are lacking concentration of the mind, or if you feel that you are a person that has completely lost his or her willpower, you know, you can't even hold a 24-hour fast anymore, because your willpower is something hilarious, ridiculous. So, of course, then the tantric tradition will say, well, how do you develop solar 
abilities, you know, how do you develop willpower, and some of these methods can be very hard, very precise. So nobody is trying to advocate, like the tantric tradition is known for some of the most formidable practices, but it is also true that sometimes the tantric tradition advocates techniques that seem to go totally against the grain. Like there is a sort of spiritual grain and it goes this way and then some people would go the other way around. I think the typical example which we always give is this story with a cup of chocolate. You know, there are many ascetic environments where a cup of chocolate is considered to be a temptation. If you drink too much hot chocolate and it's too delicious and if you lick it too much and smack your lips too much and enjoy it too much, then a cup of chocolate is a sort of like the devil, like you are becoming a glutton, a sensualist, and everything. A cup of chocolate, physiologically speaking, generates neurotransmitters, and those neurotransmitters are going to be addicted, like you will want more of that cup of chocolate. That cup of chocolate, in the light of the yogic tradition, it creates samskaras, that you have desire for the hot chocolate, and then eventually in some environments you wouldn't touch it. Well, you touch it occasionally, but then you would punish yourself hard, like, haha, today is Sunday, and we gave you a cup of delicious hot chocolate, and then for this, the next week, you are going to fast and slap your wrist and be really tough and go yang and so on, because, like, this cup of chocolate is samsara, is the devil. It is, you know, you, you like the chocolate more than you like Buddha. You like the chocolate more than you like to pray to God and all that. So because of this, enjoying a cup of chocolate, just to take this uh, particular example, in a prolonged way, like I really enjoy my chocolate and I take one hour to drink it, may seem to be sensual indulgence and not a spiritual practice. But the funny thing is that there are even shlokas in the Vijnana Bhairava, fundamental tantric text, which recommend to enjoy such a delicious thing as a means of attaining cosmic consciousness. While when you go into a Buddhist retreat, you eat a food which tries to be as simple as possible, as unpretentious as possible, and definitely you don't stop too much of it. Even before you eat your food, as bland as it would be, you make a prayer to make sure, may this food not be for my fun, may this food not be for enjoyment, may this food not be for vain beautification of my body, may this food be just to hold my body alive so that I can do spiritual practice and reach nirvana. It's a very dry attitude, like no enjoyment is really good <clears throat> because the enjoyment is uh, making you, is giving you the false belief that samsara is good and nirvana is not so valuable after all. And the idea in all those forms of spirituality seems to be that your life has to be a bit masochistic. You have to punish yourself here because when you die, if you die right, you are going to go into a world where 72 virgins are going to kiss your nipples for all eternity and then you are going to be really, really happy. But why can't I have 72 virgins kiss my nipples right now? You know, it's like, what's wrong with here and now? Why does it have to be after death? It's a complete absurdity when you look at it in this way and you can see, you know, it's like, what is this philosophy that you have to torture yourself now to get fun later? You have to deprive yourself now to get some fun 
later. And that's why, uh, while in some traditions nothing delicious would be allowed, in some traditions deliciousness, for any sense, visual, gustatory, auditory, is considered to be a way to God. For example, the greatest, arguably the greatest tantric master of the Indian tradition, Abhinava Gupta in the 10th century, he even wrote manuals of aesthetics showing how music, dance, beauty, aesthetical pleasure is actually a method of reaching the divine. It is actually a way of reaching the divine. And the fact that when you see a beautiful theater, when you listen to a beautiful music, when you witness or even when you perform beautiful dance or beautiful music, whatever is beautiful, a painting, art, or whatever is delicious, a fruit or a hot chocolate, the pleasure which results from them can result only because you are tapping a much greater reservoir of pleasure. Like, how come that you see a beautiful sunset and it it makes you get goosebumps and go in tears? And where does that sensation come from? I don't want to extend this explanation because that's not the purpose. It's a thrilling subject. We discuss it during the tantric advanced teaching sometimes. There is a whole theory, a whole aesthetical theory of how to reach God through the rasa, through the nine aesthetic emotions accessible to the human psyche. And uh, what I'm trying to say is that Tantra has turned the tables on it. Generally, um, all the non-Tantric traditions run away from all these manifestations of beauty and pleasure because they are afraid that they will divert you from the great goal. But in Tantra, their opinion is the great goal is in uh, the beauty and wherever you look, it is there. People say, oh, I was meditating on my mantra and then my mind started running away. But when you get to study the advanced tantric things, there is a shloka, another meditation shloka in the Vigyana Bhairava Tantra, which says wherever your mind runs during meditation or not, like wherever the mental monkey goes, where can it go to reach something which is not Shiva? Basically, the idea of he being that even when you rave, even when you are completely absent-minded and still you belong to God, you are in God, you are with God. You only have a feeling of guilt that you say, oh, I'm not concentrating on my mantra and therefore I'm not a good boy. I'm not doing my homework. I am not concentrating on my mantra and therefore I'm not with God. And Tantra, the Kashmirian Tantra says, what an absurdity. Show me one place in this universe where your mind can go and it will be without God. Where is there a place where God does not exist or where God, when God is omnipresent, all-pervading, omnipotent, almighty? Where is there such a place? And therefore, there is a very powerful idea that uh, in the tantric practices, you sometimes do the forbidden things. Like, there is a way of looking at pleasure it is a distraction. If you get too much obsessed with hot chocolate, you are not going to think about nirvana. So that's a disqualification. 
And then also there is a way of looking upon these things, like if you look, if you go into the hot chocolate, the hot chocolate opens the door to some pleasure, to some bliss. And that bliss is a fragment from the great bliss. Like the hot chocolate is like you drill a hole into a reservoir of nectar and you get a couple of drops of nectar coming through that hole but there is way more on the other side of that wall. You are just drilling, tapping in the huge reservoir of nectar. So basically the tantric tradition is not afraid of pleasantries in the meaning of pleasant sensations, pleasant experiences because the tantric tradition says the pleasant experiences are a distraction only if in your stupid mind you oppose them to your spiritual goal. You say, today I was watching a beautiful movie instead of thinking about God. And Tantra says that beautiful movie is also God. Why didn't you look for God in the beautiful movie? Why do you need to look for God in places which are not beautiful or not pleasant? Why not look for God in a mango or in a sunset or in a sexual orgasm or in a cup of hot chocolate? Why does it need to be only in your headstand or in your mantra? And therefore, the tantric tradition proposes a radical turning of the view. And that's why the tantric practices are often mistrusted, misunderstood, and we have to admit freely, also abused. Like some people who are doing 20 years of serious asceticism, they look at somebody drinking his hot chocolate and going into, I don't know what, uh, aesthetic uh, enjoyment, and they will say, come on, you're not serious, you know, you're not really trying to reach God, you know. Not realizing that the reaching of the Supreme Consciousness is ultimately an act of awareness, like, where would you look which is not God? Even hell is produced by God and condoned by God. Therefore, God is even in hell. Of course, you don't want to go to hell because the experience may be utterly unpleasant. But should you have the curiosity, there is no place where the divine consciousness does not shine because the divine consciousness is the foundation of existence. Things cannot exist. Reality cannot exist because reality is the reflection in the mirror of Shakti of the light of Shiva. Therefore, reality only reflects something which the creator of the universe wanted to be as such. And that is why, as I said, you know, tantric practices sometimes can be paradoxical. One person is eating a grain of rice every day and turns into a concentration camp skeleton, and another one, <clears throat> like Abhinavagupta, is enjoying tropical fruits and music and dance, and he is more in the divine consciousness sometimes than the one who practices self-punishing methodologies. Uh, so people who are outsiders to Tantra, they will mistrust it. They will say, yeah, yeah, you just like mangoes, and now you came up with a ridiculous theory that God is in the mangoes, and by smacking your lips on a mango, you're going to find the divine consciousness. What if it is that you are just a glutton, and you don't want to refrain from mango, and now you are just... So there is a mistrust, 
which is understandable. There is a misunderstanding of what it tries to be done. And definitely there is some abuse. I did meet in my life people, and I've read about people also, who under the excuse of doing tantric philosophy, they were actually condoning things. And the funny thing is that they were not practicing awareness. I think I read once the beautiful final words of a lecture of, uh, by Osho Rajneesh, in which he concluded by saying, you know, what's the purity and what's the impurity, what's sin and what's not sin, and his last sentence was, the only sin is unawareness, lack of consciousness, like that's the only sin, really. And that's why uh, we need to look, because the same is valid about the values of the masculine and feminine. There are spiritualities which want to go beyond gender. You are not man, you are not woman, you are just a child of God. No, forget about your gender. That's uh, you know, like Adam and Eve. According to Christian mystics, Adam and Eve lived in paradise. But mystery of all mysteries, they never noticed that they had a dick and a pussy. They were perhaps having some big leaves over them or something because they didn't get to notice. And then one day they ate from that blasted fruit of the tree of knowledge and suddenly they noticed that they were men and women and they started boning the hell out of each other because, you know, they, now they were attracted. They were polar. So the whole idea is you should be like children. You should be with each other, go naked on a paradise-like beach but you shouldn't get a hard-on for each other or anything because you are not man or woman. You should be innocent like children. While that sounds very beautiful in a Puritanic Vishuddha Chakra place, nevertheless, the development of the masculine and feminine is not something which you or I have invented. It's the very first division of the universe. The cosmic Tao, called in Tantra Paramashiva or Paramashakti actually, Anuttara, just to give not a Shiva Shakti related name, divides itself in two. And those two are called Shiva and Shakti. And the Taoism calls them the cosmic yang and the cosmic yin. And from those two, everything appears. The whole reality appears starting from the dance of those two. So therefore, masculine and feminine is not my fault or your fault. Masculine and feminine is the will of God. It's the way the universe is made, and without having yang or yin, you can't have manifestation, you can't have creation, you can't have the universe. That's why the tantric tradition is not going into this genderless thing and says gender has to be assumed, because God is not only the one, God is also the two, which come immediately under the one, forming thus the triangle of the divine. And that's why... The universal consciousness is defined, the reality is defined by this polarity of masculine and feminine. We define it in so many lectures, even in Agama courses, that I'm not going to insist on this. Every one of you, if you have gone at least to the second level of Agama teaching, you remember that we speak there about the masculine and the feminine being equivalent with Purusha and Prakriti from the classical yogic philosophy, Sankhya, and it is equivalent with nirvana and samsara from Buddhism, and it is equivalent with um, 
Brahman and Maya from Vedanta, and it is equivalent with non-manifestation and manifestation, with emptiness and fullness, with a nominal reality and a phenomenal reality from the Gnostic Christianity, and the list could continue endlessly. Every philosophy in this world has analyzed the reality as ultimately being made of two principles which in Europe, in European philosophy, have been called spirit and matter. Of course, some philosophies don't even accept the existence of spirit, and they say everything is matter. We don't go there. Generally, most philosophies would admit a dialectics of spirit and matter. What differs and what makes Tantra really peculiar is the relationship between them two. In most philosophies, they think that spirit fights with matter and matter fights with spirit. Wherever there is spirit, there is, cannot be matter. Wherever there is matter, there cannot be spirit. But in the tantric tradition, spirit and matter are called Shiva and Shakti, and they love each other. They make love. They are together. They dance together. They embrace each other. So it's absurd to say that if there is more Shakti, there will be less Shiva. And if there is more Shiva, there will be less Shakti. And they fight with each other. They don't fight. They cooperate. They love. They dance with each other. And that is why, unfortunately, in many traditions, the feminine is never a goal. Like nobody wants to become the cosmic feminine. At the best, at the best, the feminine is a springboard, like the body, some energies, some emotions, such as the energy of the heart chakra, not when it is focused into sensuality, but when it is focused into loving God. When, for example, you have love and devotion, that energy is kosher. It's okay. We can have it. And uh, therefore... At the best, some aspects of the feminine are surgically separated and saying from all these big things, uh, this is okay, we can have some love. Others don't even accept love. For example, in the, in the Theravada Buddhism, the Southern Buddhism, which is dominant even in this country, the Theravada Buddhism is the original old-fashioned Buddhism and it is very puritanic. And in the Theravada Buddhism, no emotion, not even devotion, is accepted. Maybe you get surprised because Tibetans are devoted. When you go to Tibetan Buddhist temples, they pray to deities and they do. In Theravada Buddhism, prayer and devotion is considered to be a sort of a kindergarten reminiscence. Because you cannot be totally detached, you will have some love for Buddha. But love is just an emotion belonging to samsara. It's a prakriti thing. It's a natural thing. So it's kind of okay to have because it doesn't seem to be in the way. But people who go to meditation retreats and suddenly they say, I felt a great love. And then the teacher dismisses it and says, yeah, that's just an emotion. It's in your mind. A Christian would be indignant and will say, what? Are you trying to put down the fact that I felt great love? But love is God. God is love. What do you mean? Because these are even these two religions, Christianity and Theravada Buddhism, are very different. Theravada Buddhism is very puritanic and says, no, no, not even love, not even nothing, aspiration, you name it. Nothing is holy. 
Everything is unholy. You have to kill every emotion. Yeah, you are not getting condemned for having love, because love is not so bad after all, but you are not getting praised as well. It's, you are still in kindergarten if you still experience love. For love is an emotion. It's just a movement of your brain. It's some vritti in your mind. So in some situations, the feminine or things of the feminine are excised 100%. In some situations, things of the feminine are surgically separated. Like It is okay to love God, but it is not okay to listen to a very naughty joke and to laugh madly. Like in a church, you can go like, ah, Ave Maria. But if somebody cracks a crazy joke, and you go like, <laughs> that, oh, that's wrong in the church. It's like, why is it laughing not good? Why is joy not good? You know, like some emotions, and I'm not talking about a destructive one, right? I'm not talking about you hitting somebody or getting angry. I'm talking about a banal thing like laughing hysterically, madly at some joke, which may be even a dubious or slightly smutty sense of humor. No, it's not holy. So why don't you accept all the energies? Only some are good. So there is a sort of censorship that, yeah, as long as you show me love, devotion, you are okay. So usually the energy, Shakti, is considered at the best a springboard. Your love will take you to God. Your devotion will take you to the kingdom of heaven and to salvation. And usually energy, all the things of Prakriti, of Shakti, are considered rather a test, an obstacle. The general view is that the world is a valley of tears, it is a trap, it is maya, it's a hypnosis, it's a sort of a, a test, it is samsara, something which tries to keep you prisoner, and the idea is the smart person breaks loose like a wild animal and escapes. The whole spirituality is a prison scape. You know, go to Sahasrara and get out of here and never look back. So because of this, there has always existed exception made in Tantra, even in religions which accept some energies, there has not existed a great friendliness to Shakti. Yes, in Christianity, there are women that are saints, but still... When you look at the privileges of men, women, condition of men, women in religion, still the women are a little bit on a limping leg there. It's not like full on. And um, in Tantra, the feminine is equally a goal. It's not just a springboard. It's a goal, which means God is equally present here and now in the light of this room, in the air that you breathe, in the atoms and molecules that make this world, in the substance which constitutes your astral body or your mental body, or any other form, the telluric energy that oozes from the ground, or any other manifested reality, God is as much present as in the cosmic void or in the metaphysical void. And this is the difference. Tantra simply says the cake, the apple, 
has been cut into half, and God is equally present in both halves of the apple. So you can find God by staying away from manifestation, which is pretty absurd given the fact that you are in the manifestation, and it is through a manifestation, which is my voice, my articulated speech, is a manifestation of energy, of information, that I am even talking to you about the existence of Purusha and of the void. So funnily enough, you exist born in the world of manifestation. I am triggering, I am awakening your aspiration to reach the cosmic consciousness by using a carrier from the manifestation, words, shastras, speech, articulated language, and although everything is happening in the manifestation, you are supposed to go outside of the manifestation and to find spirit somewhere out of this world. That's why the tantric say, if you cannot find God here and now, where will you find it? You know, where do you, where do you expect to go where you'll find the supreme reality? It's here and now. And that's why the path of tantra equally calls, when it comes to the supreme reality, they prefer to call it anuttara, which means unsurpassed in Sanskrit. And then if you want to call it by the name, it's neither Shiva nor Shakti. From Shiva or Shakti, you can call it Parama Shiva or Parama Shakti. Both words work, like the supreme divine is the supreme Shiva or the Supreme Shakti. It doesn't matter because both mean one and the same. It's all a matter of... We can understand Shiva and Shakti, but something which transcends becomes not understandable by the mind because there is no more duality and the mind collapses when it goes from two to one. And thus, Tantra, as you all know, worships the feminine. And not just some euphemistic feminine, some sort of neutered feminine, some sort of tailored feminine, which is convenient and kosher, but the feminine in its totality, the totality of the manifestation is the Holy Spirit of God, is the Holy Ghost, it is the Sophia of the Gnostics, and it is the Shakti of the Tantrics. Ultimately, the human being is born naked and thus in the likeness of the Creator. No, therefore, there is perfection in the way things are. No, I remember movies like Baraka or other visual movies. Recently, the same people made another movie called Samsara. It's a bit of pity because it superimposes on the Tibetan movie Samsara made some 10, 12 years ago. But there is another visual movie in the line of Koyaniskwazi and Baraka, <coughs> produced in 2011, which is called Samsara. And it's this visual experience. Images, crazy images from the planet and sound like everything is God. Baraka is the power of God, you know. So it's like everything in its totality, represents the Creator, not only some parts of it. We do not have the authority to start chopping the manifestation. Yeah, in our daily life, as long as we live in a human body, I cannot breathe all the oxygen from this universe. I cannot drink all the water from this universe. I cannot be in this body in all the places of this universe. So automatically I have accepted for myself for a 
80 years, 100 years, I have accepted for myself a limited form and all the limitations which derive from this. And that's why me being in a limited form, it is expected from me as a limited creature that I will not choose everything. For example, it would mean that one day I would eat a delicious orange and the next day I would take a butcher's knife and chop off my finger. No, like good, bad, what does it matter? Everything. It's not so. I am not at the stage where I can be totality physically. And since I am not totality physically, then it is logical metaphysically that I have to choose what is convenient for me. As long as I live in a body, I have an immune system. And my immune system is killing bacteria and viruses and tells them bugger off. And the bacterias and viruses are created by God. They are part of the great existence. Why am I so mean as to eliminate bacteria and viruses and don't accept the totality? Because I am not the totality in the physical form. That's why many gurus and many religions say only when you leave your body you go into Maha Samadhi because even the greatest yogis when they are in a body still they have to respond to a certain limitation. They also have an immune system. They have to inhale oxygen from the atmosphere and all that. And that is why uh, remember that the fact that we worship the masculine and the feminine in their totality, yes, in its totality, the feminine means also the tsunami of 2005 or 6, which, 4, whatever, which killed 250,000 people. That's also coming from Shakti. It's Mother Earth that created that tsunami. And if you don't understand how can that be, that doesn't put down Shakti. It simply says your understanding is limited. You are just stating a fact. I can't understand how Shakti could have produced such a traumatic event. Yeah, no comments. You have just said it. You can't understand. Try to understand, you know. That doesn't change the reality. It doesn't change what has happened or what will happen or all that. And that is why we need to understand the masculinity and the femininity in their totality, because that's the Shiva and Shakti aspect. The Christian mystics say the Holy Ghost of God can heal and give life, but it can burn and kill as well. For example, some people who, in the Christian mysticism, they play with the Holy Ghost, like by taking... Uh, communion in church without having made a confession and repented, they risk to take the communion and then to have horrible things happening to themselves because they took the communion in the wrong way. Like the Holy Spirit of God can kick you in the ass. Really, Shakti has all the aspects in her. Shiva has all the aspects in him. We are in a big ocean. And of course, it's normal that we, as limited beings... We have spirit of conservation and we choose things which make us thrive and we take things which give us pleasure and we reject things which give us pain and discomfort. That's normal and that shows our limitation. Precisely because we are limited, we are not understanding all of Shiva, all of Shakti. 
Even Khalil Gibran, when he speaks about love, he, sav- he says love is going to give you life and it's going to crucify you at the same time. Love is going to make you grow up and it's going to prune your tree as well. Love is going to give you laughter and joy and love is going to give you tears. And Khalil Gibran says if you want only laughter from love, then you will not live, all, live out all the love. And you will laugh, but you will not laugh to the bottom. You will cry, but you will not cry to the bottom. And you will be into a seasonless world where you don't manage to explore the divine to the bottom. You have to accept love, because everybody says, I want to feel love, I want to be loved, I want to love. But love is half of it tears. It is bliss and tragedy at the same time. And if you don't want to take the tragedy part of it, means you are afraid of something from Shakti. You are afraid of something from Shiva. You are afraid of something from God. And thus, um, we, we need to take, when we take the final decisions in spirituality, we need to take everything. We need to take a leap of faith where we accept the divine consciousness totally. The Hindus, when worshipping the masculine and the feminine in the Hindu Tantra, in the Tibetan as well, but they use the symbology slightly different, the Hindus, for example, have gone directly to the Lingam and the Yoni as essential Ajna Chakra symbols. of. Like if you want to boil the masculine and the feminine down, what's the essential? You know, even the anatomy of the man and of the woman is pretty much the same. Exception made when you go in the genital area, where it's radically different. Therefore, some people would say, well, that's a very sex-oriented thing. When you look at mystical diagrams from Tantra, you see Ajna Chakra, and in the right side of Ajna Chakra, there is a Shiva Linga, and in the left side of Ajna Chakra, there is a Yoni, usually a downward-pointing triangle, or something like this. Like, even the ultra-sexual symbols of Yoni and Lingam Ours, you know, like, we are not ashamed of it, like, you know, of the totality of the masculine and of the feminine, because we are talking about things that are sacred and metaphysical. I am saying all these things also, by the way, of all that has been said, uh, one of the things which triggered me to do this lecture, that some people do not understand why, for example, in the school we do choose to have a festival consecrated to the feminine. And it's funny that we had for 10 years a Shivaratri, of the Maha Shivaratri, the great night of Shiva. Nobody complained about that. And then when we make a festival of the feminine values, suddenly there appear problems. And therefore, and we are not talking about celebrating a manicured feminine, a censored feminine, in which, but it's totality. Yes, even the yoni and every, everything which expresses the feminine in its mystical totality. Because otherwise you don't get the love of God. Otherwise you don't get the Holy Ghost. Otherwise you just get truncated parts which are mutilation. Um, Truly, truly, if we were on our butt-naked republic doing Tantra as much as we want to do, a celebration of the femininity 
is a celebration of the yoni. You can see it in the tantric books and in the objects in the museums that the tantrics didn't have any problem about showing the yoni, worshipping the yoni and the lingam and everything. The female body is the great mystery. It is the ultimate symbol of the Shakti and of the universe. In the Tantric tradition, when you do the transfiguration for the fifth element for Vishuddha Chakra, Akasha Tattva, the symbol which is best used for Akasha Tattva is the naked woman's body. A naked woman is the best symbol for Akasha Tattva. The best Vishuddha Chakra meditation is meditating on the naked woman's body as a symbol of the universe. And this symbol of the universe is not something which is smutty, right? If you go in a nightclub and a woman undresses, then everybody will start whistling and saying, yeah, I'm getting a hard-on under the table right here. But somebody meditating on Vishuddha Chakra and seeing the lady of the universe is not going there because this is about the revelation of the mystery. This is about the ultimate magic. The great Professor Mircea Eliade, who wrote the first PhD on yoga and tantric yoga in 1933, if I remember correctly, anyhow in the early 30s, he even says in his chapter about the tantric yoga, he says, if in front of the naked woman the worshipper does not witness a mystical emotion, a mystical emotion, not an erection, a mystical emotion, as in front of the greatest mystery of this universe, then this is not a transfiguration, but just profanity. It is like you don't, you miss the whole point of it. And that is why, remember that there are ways of looking, as here the great saying which says that the beauty is in the eyes of the onlooker, is more valid than ever. The tantric tradition comes from a totally different direction and it looks upon masculine, feminine, lingam, yoni, female body, male body, nudity, sex, with totally different eyes. The Hindus have put copulating deities on the frescoes of their temples. And so do the Tibetans. They have deities engaged wildly in really emphatic positions and enthusiastic positions engaged in sexual congress and people are worshipping them. They are on tankas, on mandalas, on temples and so on because sex is for them a cosmic mystery. You don't look at the anatomical things of it. Sure, they do produce an echo in the human being which demonstrates we are children of Shiva and Shakti. If we wouldn't feel an echo in the human being, we would be dead. We would be cut off from our cosmic father and mother. So, of course, there is a continuity. That continuity is very interesting. Like, why, why does a cup of hot chocolate make us happy? Why does a beautiful sunset make us happy? Why does the nudity of our own and the opposite gender give us a turn on in some ways and so on. Like, why do we react? Why there is so much reactivity even to these issues? That's why, remember that in the modern world, gender is very much confused. 
people are having the gender roles are confused and there exist all sorts of aberrant theories in which men should be women and women should be men and the funny thing it doesn't make anybody happy exactly as the modern educational systems they don't make children better educated than 50 years ago actually in most of the western advanced countries where modern educational methods are used people barely know how to sign their name when they finish high school sometimes and you go to japan or to china where they use a bit more disciplinarian education system and they do go to school six days per week not five and all that and people get nobel prizes for science and they are hired by all the great western companies no when you start looking at who is the doctor who and doctor who and doctor who and the professor who it's mostly people you find uh, rajanathan from india kikomuki from japan and i don't know whom from korea you know it's like almost no westerner reaches to those levels anymore that's why i want to say that we have many problems in the modern world because some people pretend to be so smart and they came up with some stuff and it's all experimental and i for one hope that a hundred years from now everybody would have flushed all that stuff down the toilet and forgotten about it <clears throat> because it doesn't give results and uh, coming back to the issue of gender we are in full kali yuga and a lot of gender confusion and the real role models are missing that's why we have we create things about role model we have vira groups we have shakti groups where men relearn to be men because they never learned it in the family or in the kindergarten they learn some diluted bizarre theory about what it means to be a man in 2010 and women also relearn femininity again not all the aspects because some aspects are clear in the society but some aspects are forgotten or distorted and that is why the real purpose of vira groups shakti groups and in this particular situation 3 days from now of the shakti festival is to give guidance it's showing the cosmic archetypes showing the 10 great cosmic powers and understanding not only the archetypal thing oh yeah this is how kali is you know and this is how uh, tripura sundari is and yeah it's true that uh, you know kali is related to the vagina but uh, you can't really say that word and the tripura sundari is related to desire and kama but uh, you know you don't really want to show that and so on and therefore not only archetypal is like lip service yeah yeah there is some archetypal beautiful feminine out there but it's concrete manifestation every woman that comes in this school and chooses to involve herself for a shorter or longer time into tantric practice is a manifestation of the goddess there is not a part of her which is not manifestation of the goddess even the things which are disharmonious they correspond to the more bitter aspects of the cosmic and of course sometimes we reject them in our daily life because we say you know i don't want to cut off my finger and that's understandable but it doesn't mean it is not part of the totality <clears throat> it is analogous because why am i saying that we live in a world where the gender identity is distorted men don't know how to be men 
Women don't know how to be women, at least not in totality. Don't take it black and white. There are some shades of gray there. And of course, that's the purpose of the Vira workshops. That's the purpose of complete femininity workshops. That's the purpose of having every week for pupils in the school, Shakti groups, Vira groups, to develop these missing parts, which in Tantra are considered to be so important. And the problem is that people don't know how to manifest those things. Because if you are dealing with some things which in the society where you come from, they are not kosher, then you never had them. I, I always make the analogy with the arousing of anahata. Like you can be, for example, a person coming from one of the most non-anahata countries in the world. I don't want to make such a comment, you know, like which would there be that country. You decide which is one of the most no-anahata countries in this world. And you have a person who comes from that country, and that person who comes from a no-anahata country in the world is astrologically a triple earth, a triple air sign. No? Triple air person born in a society with no anahata. What a tragedy for that person. That person breathes and oozes air from her aura or from his aura. We speak about a woman in particular for this. And that person never finds a way to manifest anahata. You know, I've had men and women who came and told me, I'm 35 years old and I, I'm, I'm coming to terms with my parents right now, studying spirituality. I forgave them. I did everything. But you know, it's an odd thing to think like, I'm a human being, and my mother, all my conscious life, like maybe it happened before I was two, but in all my conscious life, ever since I remember, my mother never gave me a hug. Never. Not a hug in a lifetime. There are countries where this happens. I had people telling me this. Not one. Several people. So in the moment when your own mother didn't give you a hug for 20 years... And you are a very affectionate person. That affectionateness, how will it manifest? Because you look around and affectivity is a city in China. Nobody has it. Even if you want to be affective intuitively, you think you are a weirdo. You think you are wrong. Because nobody around you does it. And if you try to give a hug to somebody... They, re they reject you. They step one step back. They jolt. They are like, what are you doing? What's this? And therefore, what I'm trying to say here, this is an analogy to understand how it goes with femininity. Some women have femininity, but they don't know how to manifest it because nobody around them has a model. It's not allowed to be that way. It's like being that way is wrong. Exactly as some people have affectivity and they didn't manifest it for 20 years. And then they come to yoga and suddenly they see that you can manifest affectivity. I have had pupils in yoga who because their affectivity was blocked about the, because of the society, they chose to take drugs. They chose to drink alcohol because that was the only time when they could burst. Like they would get drunk and they would get up on a table in the restaurant and recite poetry from Baudelaire. And I told them, you can stand on a table in the restaurant and recite Baudelaire without getting drunk. You don't need to get drunk to recite beautiful poetry. But you don't have the guts for it. You know, It's like you think it's wrong and everybody will blame you. 
And when you get drunk, you say, the heck with it. They can kiss my ass, I'm going to recite some poetry. You do the beautiful thing. But why do you need to stone yourself or to drug yourself to do that? It's the same with femininity. Not only the religion and the society has repressed femininity for so long time, considering that feminine values are not good, but even today the modern society confuses the gender roles and makes women believe in other roles than they represent the emanation of Shakti. And that's why we celebrate femininity in the school and I'm so much looking forward to the opportunity of such a festival and this is the pale beginning because I got the inspiration for it in one of my meditations about a month ago and the poor people who are fighting for organizing this, they are working their you know, asses off to transpose my crazy inspiration into actual fact and many people don't support them. Many people look like, yeah, right, where did Swami get this? That's exactly what we needed. Yeah, right. No, instead of realizing that that is a support, no, and I am sure that if it doesn't happen, I didn't want to encourage it at this time, you know, because I don't want to make propaganda. I want facts to speak for themselves. If the school continues in the way I see it continuing, in five years, the women in the school will fight to be accepted to participate to the Shakti revelation when they will know what happened to the women who did in the previous years, what came out of them, what transformation, what grace. It's the same which we do with Shiva. When we do the Mahashivaratri, we are asking, who wants to be personifying the Shivas? And men who personified Shivas in the Mahashivaratri they were saying, my God, you know, what a grace, you know, that for a few minutes you appear as being Shiva Nataraja and people take you as a support for their meditation. What a response you get from the collective mind and what a response you get from Shiva himself. It's exactly like the actor Robert Powell who played Jesus in the famous movie Jesus of Nazareth. He had states of ecstasy during the making of the film. He went into a monastery. Afterwards, he couldn't live in the world. He got so transformed because every day he had to be Jesus in front of the camera. And he had an excellent film director, Franco Zeffirelli, and he made an incredible Jesus, a real amazing Jesus. And that's why it's the same here. We highlight the femininity and we, like we say, you know, this is femininity. I was reading just tonight an article from a Miss Contest, Miss USA or something, where even old winners of the Miss USA pageant beauty contest, they simply said, we don't know what's happening, but almost all the participants this year, they were skinny like they were from concentration camps. These were the ancient Miss winners who said, what's happening? You know, like, obviously there they highlight a femininity which is unhealthy. In Europe, in the European Union, there has been passed a law according to which photo models cannot have a body index lower than a certain number because it was pushing women to death. 
there have been photo models who died during a fashion parade due to starvation. No, it, it pushes, you know, this is what we want to teach women to castrate themselves, to exterminate themselves, to starve themselves, to mutilate. Obviously, in a pageant contest, you will not find the highlighting of the real femininity. You can find the highlighting of the real femininity in the Greek statues. People, when they speak about art, they say there is nothing more beautiful than the Greek and the Roman bodies in sculpture. People even say, you are beautiful like a Greek sculpture or you are beautiful like a Roman statue. No, but when you look at the femininity which is there, it's not the femininity of the 21st century. So those are old things, but now we talk about today. It is important that at least some crazy yogis in a society which is deeply schizophrenic and alienated stand up for real masculinity and real femininity and say, you think that femininity is this way? May we be allowed to present our counter-opinion onto this. You know, this is what in Tantra, you know, let's look at the statues of the goddesses. Let's see what has been highlighted as divine in the tradition by seers, by seers, you know. Why did people see Jesus the way they saw it when they created the famous Byzantine icons? Every aesthetician and critic of art will tell to you Byzantine icons have a mysterious aesthetic beauty and exquisiteness because many of the people who are painting Jesus they were doing prayer 10-12 hours per day. They were fasting. They, many of them became great saints. There are many, many of the saints of Christianity who are painters of icons in their daily life, so to speak. Therefore, exactly as they highlighted their divinity through painting, exactly in the same way in Tantra, we want to highlight the masculinity and the femininity. Because some people said... Uh, why, if women are going to show their femininity, uh, do you need a panel of people, of experts, of advanced pupils, who will say this femininity is worthy to be followed? You know, this is an archetypal femininity so that women in the school can be inspired. Like we tell them, don't go after the European fashion models. That's not the traditional femininity. Look the examples of femininity in this way. You know, what is a femininity in which there is love? You know, like sometimes you present a feminine model and that feminine model is cold and bitchy. Is that femininity? No, that is a form of femininity, but it does not represent the great ideal of the goddess in uh, in its fullness. It, that's a truncated femininity in which you just look at somebody because they are physically beautiful, but then the beauty of their soul is just absent. Thus, it is important in a tantric school because people say, where are the role models? Well, the role models are being created just before your eyes. And thus, it is important in a tantric school, and it was about time that this Shakti festival will appear, Thus, the viewers of all this will benefit and the impersonators, 
in my experience, because I've been part of these things, the impersonators will greatly benefit from simply shining through. And that is why I wanted to understand, because I've heard people rising doubts like, oh, why do they do a Shakti festival in a spiritual school? And like, it's not spiritual. In Tantra, this is exactly the essence of the spirituality that we practice. It's very, very spiritual. That's the whole point of what we do. And it's not about any smut or superficiality. It is precisely because we need to highlight the feminine and the masculine in its divine archetypal forms. Another thing which I wanted to introduce, which again came to my attention when I thought, what do I want to speak about tonight because I don't want to start a long series of lectures since this is one lecture before a four-week gap in which you will watch some of the best recorded satsangs from the previous years. And uh, another aspect which I was thinking about is which are the goals of yoga? Like, why do people do yoga? Because when you think about it, you say, well, there are people who practice for spiritual reasons, but there are also people who are practicing for a plethora of other reasons. Like, try to think if suddenly in Agama Yoga, there, will be, there would be no physical effects, no effects of healing, energizing, balancing, no physical. The Hatha Yoga would be off the list or it would be done in such a way that it wouldn't give any major physical. Like we'd say physical effects are superficial because your body is going to push the daisies in a hundred years. So you are investing in something which is ephemeral and transient. There will be no healing effects. There would be no applications in the daily life. Like we are not teaching you yoga, how to eliminate depression in the daily life. We are Depression, you go to the doctor. No? Like there are many Buddhist temples, and I'm not saying it in any pun. I don't want to make any pun or deprecation of it. I just give an example of traditions that don't have this part, where if you are depressed or if you are having uh, some illness, they send you to the doctor. They say, hey, we are a Buddhist monastery. We are not dealing with your low blood pressure or with your high blood pressure. You have high blood pressure, you go to the doctor. Yeah, but the doctors are going to give me pills. The medicine is fucked completely. Yeah, but still we are a Buddhist monastery and we are not a healing, or we are not a healing center here. Like, imagine yoga lacking all those things, yoga lacking application in the daily life, yoga lacking any paranormal application, such as you can obtain some paranormal abilities, then how many of the people who presently do yoga would still do yoga if yoga would boil it down in a very puritanic way and would make it this yoga in Agama is either you reach Samadhi or bugger off. It's that or nothing. We're not interested in anything else. Yes, we do teach Kashmiri Shaivism, which is like that, and yet many people do their headstand or their padahastasana or something because that also helps and it doesn't really help only for reaching nirvana. It helps for things which are way more mundane and uh, you know, profane than uh, reaching nirvana. So what I'm trying to say is in Agama I try to make people also very much aware of the yoga of the purpose. 
Like, let's say you have a purpose. Some purposes are clear. I'm trying to do yoga to improve my digestion. What do I do? And then every good yoga teacher or every person who did a number of levels in Agama will say, yes, you want to do yoga for improving your digestion. So obviously you do Sahajagni Saradhauti, you do Udhyana Bandha, you do Nauli, you do Danurasana, you do this, you do that, and you do Shankaprakshalana, and you do, and that will surely have good effects on your digestion. Right. So there exists everywhere a yoga of the purpose. But sometimes the purpose is not clearly outlined technically. Like, for example, what yoga would you do if you would want to become successful in the society? Like, your goal is to become a great leader. You are working in the Swiss social system, let's say. You are a social worker in Switzerland. And you would like to become the minister of social works in Switzerland because you are spiritual, compassionate, harmonious, and you think you are going to do a super great job for your countrymen and for... No. So, you have the best intentions. You are not really selfish or infatuated. <coughs> you, how do you do yoga for that? For example, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, when he conquered some of the Western world with teaching the Beatles meditation and coming with a famous transcendental meditation... He was giving only to his special pupils in the TMCD program teachings about, well, you do mantra meditation and you reach to the creative intelligence, which is the supreme cosmic, da da da. And so. For most people, transcendental meditation was taught like this is a meditation which increases your social abilities, your social success, you are going to be promoted as a, as a boss in the collective where you work, you are going to be more adaptable, more sympathetic more harmonious, more compassionate. Like the goals were very down to earth. Not, uh, not, I'm not giving you a mantra to reach nirvana. I'm giving you a mantra to thrive. Let's suppose you want to thrive. I want to do yoga to thrive. I want to do yoga to thrive socially. And let's take a real nasty one. I want to do yoga to thrive financially. Because money is freedom from a certain standpoint. No? So I want to do yoga for that. I want three years to put my yoga into that. Exactly like somebody that has a cancer in the stomach and says, don't talk to me about nirvana. First I want to heal my stomach because if I don't heal my stomach, I'll never make it to nirvana in this life because it's going to kill me before I reach there. So they are like priorities. So I have brought, I just wanted to say this, because I will be gone and this will happen only at the time when I come back. And I realize I never said much about this and I hope you'll tell to the other people. That is a brilliant idea which one of our teachers has had and I verified it and it's amazing. And then I upgraded it with some of my own personal advice by which we organized for the first time in the history of Agama. We organized this year the Yoga of the Purpose which is exactly that. It is a workshop which will teach you to take a purpose, any purpose, preferably moral and ethical, like I guess you are not going to take as purpose, may, may all my enemies die, you know, that's my purpose. No? So hopefully it's going to be reasonably moral and ethical. And then, how do you practice yoga generally? 
can you do an intense practice of eight days to promote pretty much any purpose? And we are not talking about reaching enlightenment. That purpose is the top of the pyramid. It's central in yoga. It's omnipresent. Let's say you are having 120 other purposes, which some of them you would even be ashamed to tell to your friends that you have that purpose. Let's say you have some purpose. And some purposes are very clear. Like you can say, I want to do yoga to increase my digestive fire because my digestive fire is really lousy. That you don't need me to teach you the yoga of purpose because it so happens that that is very clear appearing in yoga. But if I'm giving you as purpose, thrive socially, thrive financially. Show me eight days of practice for thriving financially. Or show me eight days of practice for thriving socially. Most people, even pupils who did 20 levels of Agama, they, will be, they would be at a loss. They would not know what to do, where to start from, because they are even ashamed to admit that they might have such purposes. And they never really thought about, how do you do that? Because it sounds like you are almost prostituting yoga. It's like we are hijacking this great holy thing called yoga for thriving socially. You know what? If any one of you would thrive socially instead of George W. Bush, that would be a great benefit to humanity. Actually, sometimes a spiritual sattvic person thriving socially might be the salvation of the world. Therefore, you cannot take it a priori that such purposes, such as thriving social... Any one of you thrives financially, please don't forget to throw about $50 million in my direction also, because we would like to buy a butt-naked island in Greece or in the Pacific Ocean to make a yoga republic that should stun the world. No, it's like, of course we can do it, of course we can use everything. Not everything is automatically... Okay, somebody who tries to thrive financially is automatically a greedy person that fell off the path and lost their compass and they don't know what they are talking anymore and they are lost. They have fallen off the path. Not really, not necessary. <clears throat> and that is why I was very happy when one of the teachers in our school had this creativity that created being out in the Western world was pushed by people <clears throat> you know, stop giving us things which are only exclusively holy like this and give us some meat. Give us something which works in the daily life because we are daily people and not all of us want to reach nirvana, you know. We want to reach mundane goals, you know. Do you have some yoga which reaches mundane goals besides the fact that you can stop having intestinal flatulence by doing Shankaprakshalana or Pavana Muktasana? And, like there are a few things which are very clear. There are so many things which have never been highlighted or outlined. Where that's what's happening, and I want you to transmit it to others, because so many were not here. I want almost all my teachers, all the other teachers in the school, to go and participate in this workshop, because it is a stroke of genius that, you know, adapting yoga to the needs of the world, to what needs to be done, and so on. Some people have heard that we want... No, we notice this. Some people like acrobatic yoga, dynamic yoga, intense yoga, 
more than Agama. I personally think that Agama Yoga is one of the best kinds of yoga that you can do in this world and it goes so deep and so far and it's perfect. But there are people who don't think like me and they also don't have my kind of belly, right? And therefore there are people who think in a different way and feel in a different way and those people want to do yoga in much more acrobatic way and they like Ashtanga, they like power, they like this. But why then should we separate and say that people that do this kind of yoga should necessarily be stupid and unspiritual, you know, like, because that's the, what they do. People say, yeah, you are doing gym yoga. And people who do gym yoga, in the, in, at 5 p.m. they do gym yoga with you, and at 8 o'clock they are in some disco snorting cocaine or designer drugs. You know, these are fitness uh, yuppies, you know, who do a bit of yoga, but their brain is mush, you know. Why shouldn't we be able to cater to the needs of people that do something more gymnastic, more dynamic, but at the same time giving them also a chance to grip the spiritual part, the metaphysical part, because some of them would be interested. Robin Sharma started teaching spirituality for people from the high-level management of corporate world, and he was surprised. The CEOs of big companies, they also have a soul. They are human beings. They have a Kundalini and an Atman. And guess what? Some of them even would like to reach spiritual states of consciousness, although they are so very busy with their corporate world and with their highly paid jobs. Therefore, nobody is a priori automatically lost forever. And that's why... Uh, all these things, you know, Shakti festival, yoga of purpose, Ashtanga yoga and others incorporated with Agama, like let Agama come with a metaphysical part and explain. When you do yoga this way, if you stop after 30 minutes and you are panting, what do you feel now after you have done such intent? You feel Manipura, right? So it's a yoga which is for Manipura, which doesn't make it bad or stupid or incomplete. It's a yoga which activates, but at least you should know that it's for what it's good and what it does. You should not do it brainlessly, like, okay, I'm doing some yoga, but there is nothing to it. No. That's why we try to integrate so many things. No? We, try, we have a project of integrating the traditional Thai massage and bringing back into it the nadis and the meridians and the circulation of energy because the Thais themselves forgot it. And today the Thai massage is being practiced like a tendinomuscular thing. But it was not. Both the Indian version and the Chinese version, they are talking about the energy. So somewhere in the middle something was lost. It's a pity Thai massage is becoming so famous and if it would be with energy it would be 10 times more efficient and more famous. So, of course, in Agama, we want that people that do a lot of yoga together with the Thai massage, they can bring this revival to the Thai massage. We owe this to Thailand. Thailand is giving us a cradle for us to be here and to practice yoga. It is a debt of spirit that we should also, in our lives, give something to this country and to these people 
No? So in this way, Agama has many projects which are of a tantric, some people who don't, of a tantric character. And people who don't understand, they say, why do you want to make a Shakti fest? Why do you want to make a yoga of purpose for thriving or what? Why do you want to make Vashtanga? You know, isn't it, is it Agama enough for you? Uh, it's like, you are like wanting to conquer the whole world. Yes, of course, I want that yoga and spirituality should conquer the whole world. And why would you want to put yourself into Thai massage? Of, you know, like, because you can improve. The things which we have in Agama Yoga are so powerful, so effective. The knowledge is so amazing that it benefits masculinity and femininity and the gender situation in the world. It benefits fulfilling of projects. It benefits... Uh, even the gymnastical forms in yoga. It benefits, it can benefit Thai massage. There are so many places where we can exert our beneficence through the knowledge that we got to have. And that's why I, I wanted to make this lecture about the tantric spirit, about the nature of the tantric practice, because many people would like to see us boxed in a box. Like, you guys, you should do this and mind your business and that's it. No? And as soon as we get out of the box, people feel like, oh, you know, we are trespassing. Oh, now you are imperialistically expanding, you know, and so on. Of course, everything is thriving and progressing and growing. And this is a gift from the divine consciousness, which is expanding, expanding, Expanding the Shiva consciousness is in a constant <clears throat> presence. It's in a constant blossoming. And that's the very nature of spirituality. When the consciousness blossoms, the spirituality is revealed. These were ideas which I felt I wanted to share with you and with the rest of the school. So I hope they will be posted. Clarifying some uh, things because they show exactly the way in which a tantric school is unfolding its spirituality. And it shows that the things which we do are motivated by the highest spiritual reasons corresponding entirely to the momentum of the spirituality as we see it and feel it here in the school. Uh, I'm going to stop. It's enough for tonight. We all have some very long days these days. Let us remain in uh, silent consecration, contemplation for a minute or two, letting the consciousness deepen itself, and then we can part for tonight and prepare for the few busy days coming ahead. And that will do with this. We have finished for tonight. Namaste to all of you. Thank you for joining, for participating to this. See you in the next days and at the final ceremony. And as about satsangs, in about five weeks from now, I'll be present with satsangs. Until then, the administration has chosen the most useful, the most eloquent uh, of the satsangs video recorded in the previous years. So you are going to see some very useful things which some of you who are not here in the previous years did not see. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com 
or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.